This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dexter Fergie, and you're listening to New Books in Intellectual History. Today I'll be speaking with Perrin Seltzer about his brand new book called The Postwar Origins of the Global Environment, How the United Nations Built Spaceship Earth. I was born in the 1980s, so for as long as I've been alive, environmental issues have been global, whether it's climate change or pollution of the oceans. In a certain sense, I grew up in the global environment. But as natural as this term seems to me, Seltzer shows just how modern it really is. He traces it all the way back to the post-World War II era, when cosmopolitan scientists tried and failed to build a social democratic world community in the United Nations. Despite that failure, though, they did end up creating the global environment, along with different ways to see, experience, and study the global environment. It really is an innovative book, and it should interest historians of global institutions, environmental studies scholars, and anyone that wants to historicize the categories that are closest to us. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm speaking with historian and author Perrin Seltzer. Thank you so much for joining us today, Perrin. Thanks for having me, Dexter. Absolutely. And uh, to begin, as we always start with this show, can you share with our listeners a little bit about how you ended up becoming a historian? Yeah, it was uh, by accident, I would say. I was um, a high school English teacher, actually, teaching in a, a health and bioscience academy in, in Oakland, California, and ended up from there moving into the nonprofit sector and was enjoying my job in a biotechnology education and training program for students who weren't on a path to graduate from high school. But I had multiple executive directors within a few years. And um, the last one finally drove me out, I think. Uh, so I was looking for something else to do and ended up um, thinking I wanted to go into bioethics or something like that. I had very little sense of what I wanted to do and sort of through the process, um, ended up at Penn's History and Sociology of Science program with uh, with very little sense of what uh, history and sociology of science meant at the time, um, and uh, but quickly um, discovered that it was uh, kind of what I'd been looking for. I'd been I'd been a humanities person, but really interested in the sciences from from um, throughout all of my undergraduate years, and that's why I ended up teaching in a bioscience. I kept teaching English in a bioscience academy. Um, so uh, so that's sort of the the short story. There's several other extraneous factors. I actually used my 
my professional biography with students to teach them about teleology because mm. I have a professional story that ends up and it all makes perfect sense and the and the reality was not so not so neat. Hmm. Um, so uh, your book looks at how cosmopolitan scientists in the post-war period tried and failed to create a world community, uh, but they ended up making, even though they, they might have failed in uh, their grander visions for a world community, um, they ended up making the global environment into a political problem. Uh, and as you put it um, somewhere in the book, um, this is uh, an idiosyncratic book, mm-hmm. uh, which I really appreciated. Um, and so I was just wondering if you could tell uh, our listeners um, what you envisioned when you began um, and how it compares with uh, the finished product. Yeah, that is an interesting question um, that kind of tracks my professional biography. I guess I'm not very good at planning into the future. But I was actually got interested in UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, um, as many people, many historians anyway, hear about it through their race statements in the 1950s. And I was interested in race and I was interested in Julian Huxley, who I knew about. Um, this was when I was a graduate student, uh, kind of looking for a topic to write about. And so I got um, so that led me to UNESCO. And I thought I would go and sort of um, explore what what UNESCO was doing. And my methodology was just to go to the archives, which are in Paris, which seemed like a good place to go, and um, and basically read everything in the social sciences and then into the, the natural sciences to see what was going on at the time and what they were doing. And, and the, the story sort of emerged out of that, kind of following what were the main trends, what were the what were they writing about, what were they interested in, uh, you know, over the first. 20 years of the institution's history. So I spent a lot of time in the reading room um, kind of following one project to another project in their in their science, their social sciences and natural sciences divisions, and trying to see how all these things were were connected. And I eventually ended up, I've written an article about the race statement, but that ended up kind of getting pushed aside. And I got more and more interested in what was happening in their um in the environmental sciences program, which took off after the after the social sciences um, kind of moved into the background uh, in the early 1950s. So, uh, and when, I mean, I really did not know that I was writing about the creation of the global scale, which is what um, I came to realize I was writing about until I ended that dissertation, which was, which was more of, you know, five of these projects and these case studies. Um, and then I, worked hard to make them fit together, but I wasn't quite sure how they, what the overarching narrative um, was uh, until, until I had to defend the dissertation. And then um, actually uh, one of the, one of my advisors, Sarah Igo, told me the dissertation defense that I was writing about the global scale and the, and its creation. And then it all kind of clicked in for for me. And um, I was able to then go back and do a lot more research knowing what I, what I was looking for. Great. Um, well, Sarah Igo uh, is, has actually been a guest on the program, so it's nice that we're going through uh, the, uh, the, the all the, the lineages that um, ended up with this book. Um, uh, and as well, could you say something um, a little bit more about how, uh, like, what exactly uh, the process of turning your dissertation into a book looked like? Yeah. So. What it looked like for me um, was really trying to to it, 
it it really came together and in terms of turning into a book when I when I gave up on trying to revise the dissertation to some degree. Now there was a there was a point where I was trying to revise chapters to make them fit this this new narrative arc. And I spent a lot of time kind of tinkering with those with the chapters in that way. Um, and when I turned around and kind of gave up on that and thought, well, I'm just going to smash these chapters together. I'm going to get rid of this chapter altogether, and I'm going to um, do some new research on that. There's a there's several chapters that aren't even in the dissertation on um, that moving the moving forward and moving into new institutions. It actually came together much much more quickly at that time. So that's you know when I, I think that's not an uncommon story. Um, the dissertation, I mean, it won an award and it, uh, it, it works well, but um, but it and especially the if you've read the book, you know the way I write, it, things get very intricate um, and interconnected, and so trying to trying to i guess tinker is the word i would use with the with the structure of chapters and kind of reframe them but leave leave major parts the same that was um, less productive for me than um than kind of thinking about it as having the rough elements there but starting over um from the beginning Mm -hmm. great and so for someone like myself who grew up in the 1990s and 2000s um, the idea of a global environment uh, sounds normal, if not natural. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a part of our world. It's a part of our, um, um, you know, imagination of the world. Um, and so, the idea that such a thing could be invented uh, um, is a bit uh, shocking. It's a bit striking. Mm-hmm. But this is exactly what your book does. It shows that this uh, this idea, um, uh, this this like global scale environment. Um, was indeed invented, and it has a history. Um, I was hoping that you could share with our listeners an example from the early history or prehistory of your book um, that uh, illustrates how the the global environment didn't always exist. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, one of the the classic ways that we do this in the history of science and environmental history is just with the the preeminent global crisis of, or environmental crisis of our time is, you know, if you talk about the environment, you, you think of climate change instantly, and that's uh, goes throughout the whole, you know, if you read newspapers or magazines and, um, or in, in the activist circle, uh, climate change is, a, is really the preeminent issue of our time. But, um, but the climate itself, that, that word and that the meaning of it has, is something that had to be created and did, did not exist as a, as a global interconnected system. Um, before the before the twentieth century, and really before the, the mid twentieth century, so it took um, an incredible amount of labor and organization and standardization of knowledge to be able to even pull back and see, you know, how um, storm systems move over vast territories, um, and uh, and that's and that took a coordinated infrastructure of observers scattered all all over the world. Um, Paul Edwards, who is uh, colleague of, of mine um, wrote this excellent book on the subject called A Vast Machine that kind of documents the creation of the of, the, of a world meteorological network um, over time and, and, and just how much social and technological and political innovation was necessary to, to make that to make the global climate visible. Before that, the climate was a local thing. So, you know, we still use the word in that way sometimes. So, you know, 
the climate in, in Michigan for the next seven months is going to suck. It's going to be cold and gray. And, um, and, and we use that colloquially. But when we think of the, the climate itself now, it's automatically and just become naturalized as a, as a global phenomenon. In the last um, 10, 10 to 20 years, the, the entire Earth system um, has become modeled and, and interconnected. And when we think of the climate or when scientists think of the climate, when I try and teach my students when they're thinking ecologically, is to think about um, the climate and the atmosphere and the oceans and land systems as all interconnected and influencing each other. But that, that is not, that stage doesn't even happen until after my book ends in the, in the early 70s. We have these um, old and interlinked Earth system models that goes there. So modeling is, is really important for that. Um, and in, um, you know, that global scale environment for me is, is an important phrase. And I get that from the environmental historian, John McNeil, and he talks uh, in, a, in, a, in a short piece about the global about global scale and environmentalism as you know these environmental problems that really are planetary in in their as um, at in their origin like like the climate um, is the, is the key thing there but you know for most of the period that I'm looking at the environmental problems or the or the development work that people are doing or the uh, the crises that they're worried about are are more local in origin, so they're, um, you know, uh, soil erosion on a on a on a particular farm or in a country that is not necessarily seen as part of a of a planetary problem. And so the, the scientists and the bureaucrats that I'm looking at are really um, consciously and purposefully trying to scale up those those problems in order to show people that they are part of this um, interlinked uh, world community, as you said at the beginning. Wonderful. And so I want to talk about those scientists and bureaucrats uh, in the UN system. Uh, and so I would like to jump back to um, the 1940s and um, uh, the, the 1950s, sort of the, the, the beginning of your story. Um, and uh, I was hoping that you could share with us why so many uh, of these scientists and bureaucrats wanted um, to scale up um, uh, community and the environment um, uh, at this particular moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this I th- think is one of the um, the kind of the foundations of the of the book for me is that this was a, a purposeful um, mission of these internationalists, and they, you know, had experienced most of them two world wars. Um, in, in their lifetimes, one as children and one um, one as for many of them, you know, was the defining professional event of or professional yeah, event of their careers was was the Second World War Two, um, and they got involved in a lot of them got involved in uh, in the political world either through New Deal programs um, or another country's the responses to the Great Depression um, in the in the kind of colonial crises that were going on at this time, and especially through the through the wars itself. So, from and in the book, I I really draw on the on the work of um, Quincy Wright, who was an internationalist and a political scientist and a legal scholar that was influential at this time and became the um, first president of the International Political Science Association and was very involved with UNESCO and the UN stuff. And he um, 
kind of was the final author of a major study on the, the causes of war called A Study of War. It's a huge poem. And in it, he talks, um, he, you know, something like 1500 pages long, but it kind of comes to uh, his main, one of his conclusions is that the, the causes of World War II were the lack of consciousness in the minds of individuals and politicians that they were um, part of and members of a world community. So the so this sense of these internationalists that the wars made vivid, that the world was interconnected, that um, societies were interconnected and economies were interconnected. And this was a reality in which people were living, but but individuals themselves and local communities were still very provincial and were not not adapted their lifestyles to this um, new reality. So this idea of lags that is really a prominent um, metaphor in mid twentieth century social thinking um, is key here. So people's consciousness is lagged behind the realities in which they they lived, and that caused. Um, you know, war <laughs> in the end. So they were struggling to help to as to, to find ways to make people and, and to build institutions that um, recognize this reality that we that they were a part of a world community, and um, and in that they turned to the environment as a way of kind of demonstrating to people that these problems that they had, um, even if they weren't global uh, in the 1940s and 50s in their environmental thinking that they crossed political boundaries. Um, so the, the environment was a way of kind of making people realize that and of building institutions that could then manage resources that did cross political boundaries, like rivers and railroads and things like this. Mm -hmm. uh, great. When I saw the, the, the Quincy Wright quote, I was really impressed because I think it was like in the conclusion um, and that's the, the conclusion of a 1500 page book. Um, so uh, kudos to you for, uh, for, for, for making it all the way to the end. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. I read everywhere. Uh, yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, but um, okay. So, so the, the next thing that I want to talk about is um, where these um, visions for um, global community uh, lead in the 1950s. And so a lot of these scientists and bureaucrats um, see uh, this as a, a, a problem in um, sort of uh, the international mind, that like there, there's a, a lack of an international mind. People are too tied to um, national ways of thinking. Um, and so, so they, uh, um, through uh, uh, a number of different projects, they try to pursue world community by first cultivating an international mind. So... Can you say something about this and why it failed? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, that's when I talk about the book as being idiosyncratic. That's one of the main ways it's idiosyncratic is that it's a story of the creation of the global environment, but it begins in social psychology um, and um, and with attempts to, to change people's attitudes and perceptions. Um, and this was the world community movement uh, of the 19, late 1940s that was especially prominent in the United States um, and was also, you know, um, there were advocates of this world community movement in India and in the colonial world and in Europe too, but it was really um, Americans who were most enthusiastic and most idealistic and, and, and hopeful about, about what this could, could achieve. And they um, were 
and the, the intellectuals who were sort of organizing this movement were particularly influenced by Kurt Lewin um, and his group Dynamics School of, of Research at, at, at MIT, which eventually moved to the University of Michigan, where I'm at. Um, and his in his notions of yeah action research and the the notion the idea here was that by um, studying oneself and one's community and and other communities um, that the kind of the act of doing research and of collaborating would be a way to to change your own perceptions of, of your own self and of and of others and to, and to be able to see connections with that so it was kind of a vision of of research um, as part of action and as and of social research as a form of group therapy, really. And they organized these um, discussion sections all over uh, the United States and over Europe, and um, where people would and citizens were expected to do this, and, and interdisciplinary groups of citizens were expected to get together and figure out a problem in their own community to study, and they would study it and. Um, and perform interviews and, and map their own um, communities and discuss these things and eventually produce a report. But the final report wasn't really the, the main point of this. It was the act of doing the research that was supposed to provide um, a new perspective and some enlightenment. And this sort of spread from the social psychological world into the pedagogical world. So there's it's connected to UNESCO had a huge internet um, inter, uh Education for International Understanding program in which teachers would learn these techniques of action research and group discussion and bring them into the classroom. Um, uh, and they produced a whole series of booklets that I kind of analyze and look at that are actually seem very radical when we when we read them now about the production and the social engineering of citizens. Um, and its goal was to really produce world citizens. Uh, and this also bleeds into and becomes part of community development, which was really in the early 1950s, in the 40s and in the early 1950s, coming out of New Deal America and um, fundamental education in the colonial world becomes the, the leading um, practice of development for um, the first years of the, of the UN system anyway. That is a, a community development is that you're supposed to have come up with a development project, whether it's, you know, building toilets or new housing or road maintenance or something like this. Um, but the purpose of the project itself is to build a sense of community in the in the village or the town that it's been in. In order to know what project even needs to be done, the community has to study itself and, and come up with um, you know, Daniel Imovar's new book, or not new, but old last book about uh, thinking smalls about this. So I'm kind of engaging with that work on that recent work on community development, but from the perspective of these internationalists who, when they're doing community development, they're not thinking about making villages conscious of themselves, local communities conscious of themselves, but they're really trying to cultivate these world citizens to develop a world community. Um, and it does take off. There's a, uh, especially in the United States, there's um, the UNESCO's Education for International Understanding campaign is way more successful than anybody in Paris realizes. And it becomes so successful that even the UNESCO leaders in the United States that are kind of pushing it become a little shocked and anxious about how fast it's growing and it's spreading. And UNESCO clubs are forming in all, all the states of the union and whole districts are adopting UNESCO programs in order to cultivate world citizens in these students and pry them away from the 
from the nationalism and the closed um, world of even even that the family uh, can impart upon students and to make them um, see themselves as part of this bigger community. And and the success of that program does spark a backlash. And this gets tied up because this is this international understanding is tied up with an anti-racist agenda, especially in the United States. So it gets all tied up in the um, in the civil in the civil rights politics of the United States, and it gets especially tied up with McCarthyism in the early 1950s, where you have, in fact, the McCarthyist politicians in D.C. and at the local and the state levels um, really keying in on UNESCO, in particular in the U.N. system, as a way of promoting uh, soft socialistic ideas and, and giving up the sovereignty of the United States to uh, to, to the world to um, from world government and to the UN institutions. And when you read UNESCO's work on this, um, you can see what they're talking about. They're talking about social engineering. They're talking about, uh, you know, manipulating in some sense um, children to see the world in a different way than their parents have. Um, So I, so um, that does lead to this um, strong political backlash, especially I go in the book, I talk about a case study in in Los Angeles that was particularly volatile. And that ended up, um, those local kind of conflicts at the local scale of um, ended up kind of reaching back into Paris and into UNESCO headquarters and, um, and they end up banning even talk of world citizenship in the institution. And there's, if they, if they continue to talk about world citizenship, they're going to lose U.S. funding, which is um, 40% of their budget. So that kind of comes to a screeching uh, halt in the early 1950s, about 1953, um, um, that, that vision gives way. And that, that leaves these internationalists um, looking for another, another way to, um, to build world community and to cultivate world citizenship. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I've had that. Re- you know, he, it's uh, what I'm really saying. Well, I have two things to say about that. One is, um, you know, it's interesting to me that after the superintendent of of the Los Angeles School District has, you know, given up on this and 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 distanced himself from the whole education international understanding program. And uh, the local parents and teachers who were behind this have kind of given up on the idea, um, which doesn't take very long, really. Uh, the reactionary right-wing politicians are still running for mayor years later on an anti-UNESCO, anti-world community uh, platform. And I see this, I, I don't talk about it in the book, but there's a recent other Rhodesia, where you can see this again, where the reactionary uh, white supremacist um, politicians in in Rhodesia are um, are the ones who really keep the the fears and the talk about internationalism going um, after after the moment is passed. And so you can see the intersection between these on a global cosmopolitan political scales and the local political scales work in um, unanticipated ways. And uh, the second comment on that is, you know, the this wacky stuff with the uh, with an environmental issues today that we we come across um if you if you follow this uh where locals you know north carolina communities will be 
railing against Agenda, Agenda 21, the UN's Agenda 21, and the takeover by social, international socialists of, of their local communities. And it's this reaction to this environmental movement that, that decries it as socialistic planning and, and attempts to, um, to weaken the sovereignty of the United States. And the reaction of most liberals and environmentalists to this is just that these are whack jobs and they don't know what they're talking about. But tracing their this history back, you can see that, you know, when we do that and we just give up on Agenda 21, that we are not um, holding true to some ideals that some of us, including myself, uh, do have about the interconnection of the world and um, the limits of, of sovereignty and the environmental harms that can cause that, that do cross border. It becomes easy to, because um, we've kind of forgotten this, um, that, you know, in my argument, that the international and global environmental movement comes out of this, uh, out of a political crisis uh, in origin. Um, and, and that the environment was a way of making people see the limits of, of sovereignty itself um, and the need for international cooperation. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely want to get back to how your book could help us understand um, the present. Um, but um, before we do that, I want to, uh, again, go back in time. So these visions for like a social democratic world community um, kind of fall apart in the 1950s. Um, this idea of like world citizenship um, falls apart. But as you suggest, the, um, the scientists and bureaucrats started to look towards um, different um, environmental um, studies um, projects so as to um, uh, materialize the global scale um, uh, sort of differently. And so um, what were some of these um, projects? Perhaps you could talk about um, one in particular or two um, uh, that tried to turn the global into something that could be observed, seen, experienced. Mm -hmm. how, did, how did these scientists do this, and um, what sort of challenges did they encounter? Yeah, so at the beginning of the program, um, and it really takes off in the late 1940s, um, following Truman's announcement of Point Four and the UN's adoption after that of the expanded program in technical assistance. Um, at the origins of this, it is the is the TVA that that the that Americans are really selling, and that um, becomes a kind of a an ideological and a, a model for how this sorts of programs can work. And I, I find it useful to talk about the TVA because people know about it um, in that sense. So the idea is this. And beyond the TVA, like uh, <laughs> people from other countries are like, we do integrated. Uh, Integrated river basin development too. So it's the TVA gets all this play, but in fact, um, a lot of a lot of people around the world are interested in this. And it's about the management of interdependent, interconnected resources that cross political boundaries, and that therefore take institutions that cross those political boundaries um, to manage them and to manage the trade-offs in particular of them and the, and the ways that they complement each other. They just like you have to manage 
irrigation, navigation, energy production, um, recreation, farming, industry within a inter you know within a watershed in order to um, because each of those uses has a different uh, draw on the on the natural um, on the on the natural and built infrastructure. Uh, um, that becomes sort of this model for how to build and to use international institutions or to use the environment um, as a way to build international institutions. And, and that's called, um, it's, it's a sort of a formalized theory and uh, um, that, that political scientist David McRinney calls functionalism. And it's, and it's when these internationalists are moving away from their, um, from the world citizenship model uh, that, that kind of fell apart after McCarthyism they um, explicitly, they're not surprised, first of all, <laughs> that that happens. They're, they're kind of expecting that. And they see themselves as moving away from a legalistic internationalism, like the League of Nations had, towards uh, internationalism that will do something and be active and build things. And so it's, you know, Mitterrandi's, one of his books is called, or one of his essays is called A Working Piece. And it's this idea that you're going to get people working together. So that's kind of the, um, the idea behind functionalism and the internationalism that these Specialized agencies, um, the United Nations, Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, and the Food and Agriculture Organization that I write most about um, take on. The projects that I look at the um, most closely in this uh, as sort of our cases are two. One is uh, the Arid Zone Program that UNESCO organizes um, that begins in the late 1940s and runs to the 1960s, then becomes the International Hydrological Program after that. Um, and the other is, uh, is the creation of a, of a um, soil map of the world. And the, the desert program, the arid zone program, is, you know, it, all it really amounts to is a lot of international conferences of interdisciplinary ecologists and other scientists interested in arid zone programs, and then some, um, some smaller scale uh, development pro- programs that are looking and aiming to make the desert bloom again. And they're focused on the desert because this is an area where, um, especially in the, in the Middle East, where the UN can, is, is active. It's the first area to kind of leave the colonial orbit and become open for UN and international institutions to get involved there. It's the birth of the third world um, in, in the Middle East. Uh, and so it's a, a, a fertile ground for, for UN institutions, but it's not fertile for growing food. And it has, uh, most of many of these countries have, um, have a, a lot of population growth going on at the time. So there, the, the notion is that you can use science to make the deserts more productive, make them bloom again, and um, to reclaim the deserts uh, in sort of a biblical kind of, of sense. And there are tons of biblical allusions to this uh, in, the, in the scientific writing um, about, about what their program is going to be. And the, the idea is that you can, um, they call it, uh, the program's kind of, byline is men against the desert and they talk um not only in biblical metaphors but in martial metaphors so this idea is that the scientists themselves are going to be these generals leading mankind in a fight against nature in order to um in order to forestall a malthusian crisis is is the basic sense of this and it's promoted on those internationalist grounds and becomes the way that UNESCO gets a foothold in in the natural resources area in, in the first place. Um, so that's that's one of them. And I, one of the ways I like to visualize this is with uh, they had they create a, uh, a homoclimatic map, which means a map of similar climates all over the place. 
and it's a map of the arid zones of the world. And this becomes sort of the logo of the of the program itself. And it, it's interesting to me because it's a map of the of the world without any political borders at all. And it's on the inside covers of all their books, and and um, becomes kind of the image of what they're what they're trying to do. And everybody's got the problem of feeding each other, uh, feeding ourselves, and that you know if you're suffering from arid zone problems in Morocco and in Egypt and in India, that you can um, work together to solve those problems. So the scientists really um, uh, adopt that kind of uh, attitude because it works well with their um, scientific, you know, ideology that they'd already come in with, with, which is this scientific internationalism and the Republic of Letters kind of notion of in the in the history of science. And so they kind of move right into this, and it and, it, and for them, the, the triumphs are being able to work across uh, political boundaries, you know, so that the, the first world and the second world and Arabs and Israelis, although that really works out, are sitting at the same table. That's the sort of the proof that the program is working. And at the end of the, the conclusion of the program, it's, you know, hailed as a great success. But even the, the administrator, uh, Michelle Batiste, who's run the program, says, well, you know, it didn't make the deserts bloom again. But it did create an international network of scientists and institutions that are attacking this problem. And in that sense, it was a success. And that's what we were really trying to do in the first place, which is build this international community. And they, um, they do create you know, what political scientists call an epistemic community, which um, is an international community of experts who understand the, the world in similar terms and share, and share values and, and then can coordinate policy based on that. So that's the, the arid zone program. Um, wonderful. And so uh, yeah, one thing that I really enjoyed about the arid zone program chapter was how the, the politics that um, you examine are uh, not so much like the high politics of, you know, like the Cold War, uh, but more these like interagency battles, um, which I, I, I really appreciate. You, you, you kind of um, pull back the curtain of the um, like the innards of the UN. Um, yeah, and uh, it, it all looks very different. Just thinking about that um, for a moment, I, I want to um, ask you what the relationship to all of this is to the Cold War. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, in, in the book, you the, the Cold War is setting the conditions um, yeah. for a lot of these projects, but um, but it's uh, it's also being it's also kind of on the periphery of your narrative. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I'm glad that you liked the bureaucratic politics. That was the the main challenge of writing this book is that if you start from the UN archives and you work your way out, and I was determined to not write another kind of cultural history of the globe uh, and the, the planetary consciousness, because there's been a lot of that. And I think it's fairly ungrounded um, in, a, in, a, in a way. So I wanted to write, I, I try and treat my the international scale that I'm writing about as as my local scale. So I'm starting from there and working out. What you find is that uh, the bureaucratic and interagency politics um, were extremely important and and um, and were much more present in the lives of the experts and and had an important impacts uh, than often the international politics and regional politics also intervene in interesting ways. In the relation to the Cold War, you're, you're right. Setting the conditions is a, is a great way of putting it. I think I call it in the book, um, they set the, the, the Cold War is marginal to the story I'm, I'm telling, but the margins are really important. They set the, the limits on, on what is possible and they frame the whole, whole discussion. And at critical moments, the Cold War does intervene um, 
in more direct ways, but they're often kind of refracted through political scale. So in my discussion of, you know, the the social psychological cosmopolitanism that and the world citizenship movement, the world community movement that that um, that ended in the 1950s, you know, it is McCarthyism that is the as a main cause of the end of that moment, which is part of the Cold War, but is really a response to domestic politics that has more to do with, you know, say, public housing in Los Angeles, in some sense, than the, the threat of the Soviet Union from a U.S. perspective. Um, so the, um, the, the Cold War acts in this book, uh, uh, it, it, be, it is peripheral, um, and it gets marginal, it has important impacts in us in several ways. One is that the U.N. turns out not to be a very productive place for either superpower to prosecute the Cold War. And they are, um, you know, the the politicians in the United States and in the Soviet Union really are seeing the world primarily, not as we know now, not entirely, but primarily through a Cold War lens. So they become less interested in the UN pretty quickly once they, and they're not very good at negotiating the, um, the UN agencies either. And they both have elaborate security uh, protocols for even being able to work with the UN so that it becomes difficult to host conferences in the United States and US and Soviet experts have trouble even getting to international conferences because they have to get, you know, in America, they have to get cleared by, by the FBI and it's much worse for, for Soviet experts. Um, so in these ways, it marginalizes the superpowers, which opens up room for um, for European nations to really step in and take leadership of these international institutions and international organizations themselves are European in their origins. Um, so Europeans were used to working in these organizations and especially small but prominent European nations like um, the Belgians and the Dutch that, that had extensive empires before the war. They really um, have a lot of experts and interests in promoting um, their interests and in engaging and in promoting an internationalist view of the world. So they come in and take a very prominent lead. And as you see decolonization unfolding, which the UN itself is accelerating by making nation states the, the real legitimate um, units of, of, the, of the world system, um, you see colonial experts leaving the, leaving the UN or rather leaving the um, their colonial offices and imperial offices and entering entering the UN and bringing that expertise they developed through their um, colonial work. So that's one of the, another way that the, that the, um, that the Cold War and, and decolonization kind of intersect in, in creating this history. And then later you have experts, not until the, really the late 1960s, do you have experts in numbers coming in from the third world into, into UN agencies? Wonderful. And, and so as we get into the late 60s and 1970s, um, the global environment starts to become uh, a thing. It starts to become an object, uh, um, something that people can talk about, and um, it, it's something that comes to matter. Um, can you talk us, um, talk us through how the global environment became uh, um, something that people could talk about and see and experience? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's the, you know, the Arizona program that I talked about. And then there's uh, my favorite chapter in the book is actually this chapter on soil maps that mm-hmm. I didn't talk about and um, probably won't now because I get too excited <laughs> about soils. But um, that's a big project that's, you know, creating a, a world map of this 
thing that is profoundly local soils and really hard to map and takes a ton of work to be able to to um, just create the categories in which experts can um, communicate with each other and know that they're talking about the same thing, the same sorts of soils all over the world. So, and, and they build that sort of community that way of experts. And then uh, um, I also talk some about the international biological program kind of emerges out of UNESCO's work in the and out of the um, International Geophysical Year becomes a model for that. But the biologists come together and, and have a big program about um, about really productivity of biological systems and how biologists can contribute to development. And they create another uh, another international community of biologists that are working together um, in a more formalized, bureaucratic kind of way. And those are just a few of a bunch of projects that are happening, you know, in, in meteorology and, and all uh, sort of a sampling of them that gives you a sense of how these sorts of things work. Um, so there is by the, and, you know, I could have started the book earlier talking about the creation of international communities, as many have, and there's a, a great literature on the creation of inter, uh, of global environmental knowledge that, that dates back further, but it picks up momentum during this period. So there's that kind of ex- expert side of it and the, and the scientific side of creating this knowledge. And then there's the crisis of the, of the 1960s itself, um, the, you know, global 1968 as we have come to think about it that is precipitated by decolonization and and we in the in the um, in the developed world and Vietnam and all the various causes that have historians have talked about um, with this sort of crisis of of legitimacy for state institutions and government and 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 and, and, and authority um, that that spans the globe itself and the UN is not immune to that crisis of authority and in fact the un um has uh is suffers or is feeling it very acutely and feeling like the institution itself has become become marginal to to the to world politics um and it's become marginal for a couple of reasons first of all the superpowers are pursuing detente in part in reaction to this crisis of legitimacy to show that they do have control and are able to manage um, international affairs. So they're pursuing detente on a bilateral basis, which further marginalizes the UN security function. And then secondly, the 1960s have been um, declared the decade of development for the United Nations and, and by the United States and the UN. And um, and these and it was a, you know began with with real optimism and ambition about what could be achieved. And in retrospect, you know. 10 years while you're so many countries are undergoing decolonization it's not a very long time to expect to see results but in the un the development mission was was perceived as a failure um, by the late 1960s and they have a few like blue ribbon commissions that are looking at development and, and kind of um, framing it as a crisis and as a failure that the less developed world as it's now known um, is not growing at a rate to even keep up with the developed world at this period of time. And the UN hasn't delivered on these, on these, um, on this promise. And um, at the same time, you have the birth of the environmental movement, which at this period of time is not the global scale environmental movement that I'm interested in, but is much more localized and is about, you know, urban problems and suburban sprawl and, you know, DDT use and silent spring and these sorts of things that you can see in your, in your local communities. Um, but it is creating this sense that there's this new um, environmental crisis that, that states need to respond to. 
And some of these crises do cross political lines like like acid rain and some of these resources that are seen as, you know, degrading are international like the oceans. Um, so the UN sees a, a, a potential role for itself in managing the environmental crisis. But in order to have a reason for international institutions to be involved here, and especially world institutions, there has to be some sort of a global crisis. So, um, so players in the United Nations, and you can see this, you know, written explicitly in their private correspondence, um, see the environment as a way of reestablishing that the UN has a purpose, that it can function, that it can do things that are productive um, uh, on the world stage, managing these in- environmental problems. And But to do that, they really need to identify problems that are bigger than any, or more geographically spread anyway, than, um, than any, that, than in a region or a nation even. So they're explicitly looking to identify global environmental problems that justify UN coordination and action. Um, and they um, and so the book ends with this kind of what's seen usually as the origins of the international environmental movement or as a key watermark in that history anyway, which is the Stockholm Conference or the UN Conference on the Human Environment. And that was really a conference that was... Um, held in order to, from the perspective of the people that were organizing the UN, to reassert the UN's um, uh, competence in a certain way um, and to identify these global problems of the environment. Mm-hmm. And one interesting, one, well, yeah, there are several interesting things about this, this moment, um, but one um, uh, really striking thing, especially about your narrative, is um, how you frame um, the uh, the relations between the decolonized world um, and the industrialized, the so-called industrialized world, um, and so um, more traditional uh, narratives have kind of pitted the industrialized world's, um, you know, um, panic over um, environmental degradation and pollution um, against the third world's concerns for development um, and industrialization. Um, but uh, uh, you show how these weren't always opposed. And how there was actually a lot of like compromise and negotiation um, uh, uh, between the two. Um, can you say something about that? Yeah, yeah. This is a. Uh, it's complicated and hard to to kind of summarize in a in a soundbite. But it but that but you did a but you did a good job there. So I hopefully <laughs> I can um, put it as well as as you did. But you know this moment when we look back at the late 1960s and the early 1970s, it's often seen as the origins of the um, the environment versus development framing. And in some ways, that's right, because we have looked at, back at it that way. And so it's, it's, that has been what it has become. And there were, um, and there was an element of, of this um, third world resistance to the environment becoming the preeminent global issue when they, when third world countries were, you know, still fighting for development itself. Um, but my argument is that that misreads in critical ways what was what was going on, and that and that, and that misreading continues to have uh, effects in the in the world. I think, um, and and it misreads it because the. The development that the third world was pursuing um, at this time was the same development that the UN was promoting. And in fact, many of the intellectuals from the third world had, had you know, um, learned about it 
learn development through their engagement and um, and participation in in the UN activities themselves. And that vision of development was a conservationist vision from the beginning. You know, it began, as I'm saying, like with a sort of TVA vision of the, of the management uh, uh, and distrib- the use and distribution of resources. And it was important for these internationalists that that was within a within a within, with limited growth, because that limited growth. And those natural limits were what caused people to have to cooperate. So, what the third world is wanting in the when they're in the lead up to the Stockholm conference in the late 1960s is really um, a new international economic order, and that's the vision that they want the UN to be focused on. And a lot of their reaction against the environment is that it's a distraction from producing something truly radical and transformative, which um, takes into account power and, and economic exploitation on a global stage and reimagines um, that international economic order. So the environment is a distraction from that. But that, that vision, the NIEO, the New International Economic Order, is not a vision of endless growth. Um, it's a vision of, of limits and of new sorts of trade relationships and, and loan relationships and, and fairly um, detailed uh, that um, that UN agencies themselves were promoting at, at the time. And that actually fits very well with a conservationist understanding of how resources um, should be used and distributed um, for the greatest good of, of, of everybody. So, um, so you see at this time, um, you know, the leaders of the new international economic order also coming to question growth itself. So the reason I think it's a misreading of what was going on was because in retrospect, it looks like, well, these third world countries did not, you know, they just wanted more growth and more development, uh, more, more, more. And they didn't want to hear about these limits uh, that the environment was putting on. And, 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 and people were, had interest in promoting that vision of, or that reading of what was going on. But in fact, there were, Important complement complements between the um, between the environmental vision and this uh, third world vision of, of what development would be, and in fact, the main thing that comes out of the Stockholm Conference is the UN Environment Program, and it becomes the first specialized agencies to be located in the field. It gets located in Nairobi, and it's and it's third world leaders that are um, and and experts that that come to. Um, to, to lead the institution itself and uh, really have a, have a big hand in, in directing it. And it becomes, you know, uh, a, a, a problematic but important institution on the world stage. So in, in my telling of this story, this 1972, the early 1970s is really the end of a story, not the beginning of sustainable development, as it's usually called. But it's the end of this conservationist vision. And it's an end that the actors themselves who are involved, whether from the third world you know, the development side and the traditional telling or from um, the first world, uh, the environment side, none of them saw that coming. Um, they did not see this sort of liberal environmentalism um, that, that takes off in the 1980s uh, happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really appreciated um, just your general um, like reperiodization of uh, environmental thinking. Um, you know, like what so many people have taken as um, the origin mm-hmm. uh, of uh, um, environmental thinking, uh, you see as uh, the end of a particular strand of uh, environmental thinking. Yeah. I think that this sort of rearranging of the material is um, uh, just really productive. 
Um, so, um, so we're um, uh, getting close to the end of our interview, uh, and I really wanted to um, ask you a couple questions, um, sort of, uh, um, uh, you know, in, in sort of concluding the book. And so, the first thing that I want to ask is, uh, again, your book is idiosyncratic, um, and uh, and so I was, and then by that, you know, it's interesting and creative and um, and different. Um, and so I want to ask. Uh, how should this change the way we teach 20th century global history? Hmm. Well, you know, on the on one hand, I would like to see um, that, you know, I've never thought about it this way before, but it just occurs to me that what I really would like to see is the um, is two sides of global and world history kind of come together. Uh, and, and those sides are um, the sort of ideology and visions of the globe. So there's a whole strand of, of world history that's about the creation of a, of a global consciousness and world consciousness. And that's, you know, I partially come out of environmental history, and that's a, a big theme in that. But there's a, a sort of a cultural history of the world that is, is one strand, and it's often somewhat disconnected from um, institutions and politics uh, itself. So I, you know, what I would love to see happening is, um, is those two strands to come together and to understand, you know, what I'm talking about is that the creation of the, of the global environment um, and environmental consciousness uh, as a problem and as an issue uh, is, you know, part of the production of global institutions themselves. So in the history of science um, or science studies, we call this co-production. So this co-production of ideas and institutions of society and science. And, you know, and that works at a global scale, too. So I would love to see um, that happening. And that means taking international institutions. So was, when I started writing this book, um, it was, uh, <laughs> it, you know, there was very little written that I liked written, um, about, about UN organ agencies in particular. Um, and there's more coming out about this now and good work happening. I, I like, I'm, I'm happy about that. And I'm happy that my book kind of has, has a place within a literature now. And I think that could get integrated, uh, into the, into the field, um, in real ways. So that's one, that's kind of one way that I would like to, the book to impact that's that's a, a great answer uh and so the second question that i have as we're concluding here is um you know we're living in the um uh, you know what, what gets called the anthropocene um uh um the um the, the very serious crisis of climate change uh and so i'm wondering what your book uh can tell us about our present yeah. Sorry, these are both um, very challenging questions. <laughs> no, this is a this is a great question. I was I don't know if I talk about this in the acknowledgments or not, but I was writing the conclusion on the day um Trump got inaugurated and I was writing and I switched over to listen to um to the inauguration speech and he was just railing uh against the notion of world community, which I thought was sort of a archaic idea. Um and you know, and talking about this America first stuff, and I had to put the book, I had to put the conclusion away for a couple months because I felt like I was just going to conclude with an editorial um about the present about the present moment. And that's not what I wanted to do. And I understand that in fact our present political crisis um has 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 longer roots uh than than that inauguration and the and the environmental crisis certainly does too. 
Um, you know, the thing that I, one of the, one of the ways that I hope that it, it helps people think about the present moment is that the, um, the, that just the hard work of global governance, as it's called now, and of international cooperation and of these damn bureaucracies that take so much struggle to engage with, and the politics that keeps getting in the way of having productive, you know, policies that mediate the effects of climate change can be very frustrating and can seem like they're um, a distraction from the real crisis of, of the climate itself. And I hope that my book can help people see that the creation, that the very fact that we know about the um, about the global crisis and about the global environment is 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 has its origins in people's response to this political crisis that we that different communities couldn't live together on the planet and and that has led to mass death and destruction and including environmental destruction on a massive scales through war and that they saw the environment as a way of showing people the need to, um, to, to work together on these things and, to, and that there was no solution without a solution for these issues. And the fact that the, the global environmental crisis turned out to be very real um, and to be global in scale uh, only reinforces for me the, the fact that, the, um, that this process of um, working towards global political um, solutions, or at least having to struggle with them is, is, is necessary and not a, not a distraction, but it's actually, actually at the very heart of the problem and will only become uh, more critical as the, as the crisis worsens. And, um, and, 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 and the way that I mean that is that if you take my book seriously uh, and you, you know, the, the framing in which we should be understanding climate is, is clearly a justice framing. Um, and, and you know that's that's when you bring the politics and make them a really part of of what where what the crisis is and what the what the future entails. Um, this issues of equity and justice and and how the how the vulnerable uh, and the powerful are affected by the the changing environment um, uh, becomes impossible to miss. I think. Yeah, I'm so excited about what I'm working on right now. I'm so happy Wonderful. not to be in the in the bureaucratic <laughs> archives. Um, partially, I'm excited because I'm just starting it, so anything is possible. But I'm thinking of it as, uh, in my mind, it's called the um, the Holocene is is history, human nature at the end of the last ice age, and it's going to be a, <laughs> a history. Uh, it's going to really be a 20th century history, but it's going to be a, a history of um, the stories and the knowledge creation of the Pleistocene Holocene transition. So that's, you know, the, the formal marking of that is about 11,700 years ago. And this is when the Ice Age became the Holocene. And I'm interested in it because it's um, the Holocene in our, from the perspective of the Anthropocene that we now occupy when humans are the dominant drivers of change in the Earth system. Um, the Holocene is seen as this sort of gentle epic in which civilization can flourish and, and humanity exists within this safe operating space that made agriculture and cultural development possible. Um, so there's, there's a lot in, in the, a lot riding on the Holocene there and, the, and a fair amount of environmental determinism that comes in there. What I find interesting about it is the, uh, the actually this transition um, is, 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 is quite catastrophic for 
things that were living at the time in many places. You know, you have ecosystems entirely redistributing themselves, massive floods. You've got four degrees Celsius change uh, in temp- global temperatures within a century or more, probably, um, even more temperature change than that. You have dramatic changes, sea, you know, sea level rise, like we're not even predicting for, for the future. And this is sort of the moment that um, that the Holocene is born in. And so I'm gonna, my plan is to track, and, and then that knowledge about this particular time is really important in forecasting the future. So it's really important for knowing if our, um, if our global climate models work and, if, um, and, and knowing and understanding how sensitive the, the Earth system is to changes, um, uh, you know, in, in, in various factors, uh, whether, how, what, kind of, what kind of degrees of changes that can, small events can precipitate on the, on the, on the global stage. So I'm interested in that side. And then I'm going to look at um, the, the kind of the origins of agriculture and megafauna extinctions and the stories people have told about that and how it get caught, gets caught up in our understandings of civilization and development processes. And Wonderful. Well, uh, I, I think it would be safe to say that um, that sounds like another idiosyncratic book, um, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I'm super excited for it. Uh, and I want to thank you again for uh, speaking with me today. All right. Thanks for having me, Dexter. Yeah, of course. And uh, thank you. Thank you, listeners. Uh, you've been listening to New Books in Intellectual History.